In this episode of Unbelievably True Crimes, we look at a case study from 1991 that takes place in Inverness, Scotland, in which a woman is kidnapped right outside the gate to her home. When she wakes up, she doesn't remember anything other than a car pulling up behind her before everything goes black. This is Unbelievably True Crimes, Episode 5. Initially, we looked at all his items of property and we obtained some DNA profiles, which I held and ultimately loaded onto a database for missing persons. Okay, just so you know, I'll be recording this interview. Please make sure your answers are clear and don't mumble. I hate that. Now, I know who you are, but I need you to confirm your name for the recording, please. Welcome back. To episode 5 of Unbelievably True Crimes. My name is Ty, and with me is my wife. Introduce yourself. Hello, hello. My name is still Adri. Still Adri. I'm still Ty. Episode 5. Yep, episode 5. Un- unreal. Unreal. <laughs> Unbelievably True Crimes. So what is what is this? What are we doing here? Unbelievably True Crimes is a crime podcast. Notice I didn't say true crime. Why did I not say true crime? Do tell, Ty. Well, because this podcast is not always true crime. Now, one may ask, what do you mean it's not always true crime? Well, let me explain. I'm glad you asked. Sometimes there's cases that we discuss that are not true at all. Sometimes the cases that we discuss each episode are completely fabricated by me. Like you, Adri will not have any idea whether or not the crime we are discussing each episode is true or false. She is hearing these crimes in real time. She's hearing it all for the very first time, every single episode. At the end of each episode, you and Adri will have to consider everything you've learned throughout the episode to decide whether or not you think the crime was true or false. And at the end, it will be revealed. Unbelievably True Crimes aims to bring you interesting and amazing stories every single Monday. And it's my promise to you as the one who picks these crimes or makes them up, that regardless of whether the crime is true or false, I will have you wanting more and more. Hang tight until the end of this episode to discover whether or not the crime was true or false. And do not, I repeat, do not look it up as we go along. Because why? Why? Because that would spoil it all. Because nobody likes that guy. That's why. Nobody likes that guy. Just join me. And at least if you are wrong, at least you're not live on air like I am. Yeah, if you're wrong, <laughs> no one will know unless you tell us. I'm only, what am I? One for three. One for three. You're, you're one for three. So I'm on a roll. Yeah, you're doing you're doing okay though. Doing okay. So you'll have a much more enjoyable experience if you just sit back wherever you are and take every piece of information as I present it to you. Now, without further ado, episode 5 of Unbelievably True Crimes. Let's begin. This episode, we're taking a trip to Inverness, Scotland. Inverness is located at the mouth of the River Ness. Inverness lies at the end of the Great Glen with Loch Ness, Loch Ashie, and Loch Dontelshag to the west. 
According to wikipedia.com, the population of Inverness was approximately 70,000 people as of 2019. In 2014, a survey that was conducted by a property website described Inverness as the happiest place in Scotland and the second happiest place overall within the United Kingdom. In the same study conducted in 2015, one year later, Inverness was once again said to be the happiest place in Scotland for the second year in a row. Well, that was quite chipper for this podcast, considering that this is like a crime podcast and generally pretty depressing. So I'm going to assume that information is, is more just like a fun fact. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a fun fact. I figured I'd at least cast just a little ray of sunshine before the inevitable depressing subject matter hey, follows. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course, anything for you and our listeners. Now we're going to talk about Isla Abernathy first. Now, who is Isla Abernathy? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Isla Abernathy is a 41-year-old Scottish woman who works as a housemaid and nanny for a very wealthy family who resides in North Kessock in Inverness. The family that she worked for shared the last name of Winchell. Isla also resided within the Winchell's 13,000 square foot, nine bedroom, five bathroom monstrosity of a home in North Kessock. Nearly as big as Warren Jeff's home back in episode four. Yeah, only about 30 bedrooms off. 13,000 <laughs> square feet is still massive, though. I think Warren Jeff's was approaching 19,000. Still insane. Gosh. Yes, massive. So 49-year-old Harris Winchell worked at Regmore Hospital as the hospital's lead neurosurgeon. In 1985, a German medical research company hailed him as the world's greatest neurosurgeon of the century. Harris's wife, Ava Winchell, who was 35, was a stay-at-home mother to their three-year-old called Jack Winchell. Also working for the Winchells was the 46-year-old Rick Stanfield, who was the groundskeeper who resided on the property as well. However, he did not live in the castle. He lived in a guest house. All right. So what year is this right now? The year right now is 1991 in the story. Right now, the year is 2020. Yeah. <laughs> but in this story, it's 1991. So in January of 1991, Isla Abernathy had just returned to the Winchell household after going to get some items for Ava Winchell, who was suffering from some flu-like symptoms. Ava Winchell had asked Isla to go to the grocery store because she could not get up and move around due to these symptoms, due to this sickness. Now, it's important to note at this time, Harris Winchell was called out to Regmore Hospital for an emergency surgery that would need to be performed after a very large vehicle accident had taken place south of Inverness due to the icy roads. And because of this, Harris was not at home. Now, the Winchell household had this eight-foot-tall wraparound stone wall that surrounded the entire Winchell Castle. And there's only one entry and one exit to the property, and that is accessed by a tall 10-foot metal gate with a keypad on the exterior. And to gain entry to the Winchell's four-acre plot of land, you must know this six-digit passcode that opens this gate at the base of the Winchell property. So upon returning back to the gate after retrieving these items for Ava Winchell from the grocery store approximately 10 miles away, Isla pulled up to the gate, rolled down her driver's side window, and typed in the six-digit code to the gate. What time is it at this point in the story? 
at this point. So when Isla left the Winchell Castle to go get the items for Ava, the time is about 7.30 p.m. And when she returns, it's said to be about an hour and 15 minutes later. So about 8.45 p.m. Okay, so it's fairly dark out at this point. I would say so because it's January and, you know, the sun goes down yeah. quicker. So, yes, I would say it's it's dark. So Isla is sitting there at this keypad outside of the Winchell's property. And after typing in the six-digit code, nothing happens. So she types it in again a few more times and she realized that the gate is probably not going to open because it still is not opening. So at this point, Isla drives to the next door neighbor's house, which is about a quarter mile down the road. Oh, wow. So, all right. So what's the area like where the Winchells live? When I was looking at pictures, the Winchells live right outside of Inverness city limits. And in the pictures, the home is a very beautiful castle, very green forested area. I did not look at pictures when it was winter, but yeah, there's not a whole lot of houses. So their neighbors, quote unquote, are quite far away. That's nice. I, I, I really like that. That would be nice mm -hmm. if we all had the money that the Winchells have. Yeah. So Isla drives west on a road called Culloden Road toward the Greaves residence. The Greaves is the last name of the neighbors. When she arrives at the Greaves gate, she presses the intercom button on their keypad, which then phones inside of the house. Now, shortly after a male voice, who is Thomas Greaves, responds and Isla asks him to phone the Winchell residence to tell Ava that their gate is not opening for her and that she's returned with the items she asked for. Thomas advises Isla that he will do just that and he then gives her the option of waiting inside of the Greaves residence while she waits, but Isla declines the offer. Isla then drives the quarter mile back east on Culloden Road and arrives back at the Winchell's gate. And she tries the keypad again, but once again, nothing happens. So this is January of 91, correct? Correct. So it's probably really cold out there. Yeah, because even the neurosurgeon left because there were icy roads. Right, right. Yeah, I would assume it's pretty cold because, as, as you stated, yes, he, he had to do that emergency surgery because there was the vehicle accident due to the icy road conditions. Good memory. So it was at most, give or take, 32 degrees? Because isn't that the temperature water freezes? Wow. Very good. I'm, I'm impressed. Look at me. I know things. You, you do. You do. You, you may be one for three, but you do know the temperature <laughs> at which water freezes. So I, I will give you that. Thanks. <laughs> so yes, at most, it was 32 degrees. So pretty cold. Isla then reportedly types in the six-digit code again when she sees something behind her. What she sees is a car pull up behind her, followed by a male voice and footsteps approaching her from the darkness behind her on the road. And in a police report dated January 19th, 1991, it states that this was the last thing that Isla reportedly remembers. Oh no. So continuing on in the police report that I obtained from the Inverness Public Records database, a passerby had been driving by and called in the communication center there in Inverness, and they stated that there was a vehicle sitting outside of a gate with the driver's side door open and the vehicle lights on, but no one inside this vehicle. So in the police report, it states that 
Officer Dunsmore arrived on scene, observes this dark blue 1973 Volvo sitting idle with the driver's side door open outside of the Winchell's residence gate. And upon closer inspection, he states that inside of the vehicle there were several grocery bags containing various toiletry items, over-the-counter medicine, and nappies. <laughs> nappies? <laughs> nappies. Diapers. Upon observing the ground outside of the car, he stated that there was no snow on the roadway, only the shoulders of the road. He stated that he couldn't see any footprints in the area around the vehicle. He did observe, however, an area on the ground just outside of the driver's side door that appeared to be two lines in the dirt, approximately two inches wide each, that appeared to drag north away from the gate. The drag lines were measured at 13 feet long, where they then ended abruptly in the middle of the road. So she probably got dragged out of her car into someone else's? Well, let's see. Officer Dunsmore's report goes on to state that at this point, he believed that there had been an abduction of whoever had been inside of this vehicle. He believes that the lines on the ground are possibly drag marks from someone's heels. Upon running the number plate, or the license plate here in America, on the vehicle, he learned that the vehicle owner was Harris Winchell and it belonged at the address where the vehicle was parked outside of. Due to the severity of the crime, Officer Dunsmore radios in to his dispatch center and asks them to contact the on-call detectives for a possible abduction. Approximately an hour and 45 minutes later, Detective Sandy Giblin arrived at the scene of the crime. Detective Giblin begins her initial investigation into the scene and determines that what they are looking at is indeed an abduction. So it's at this point when a vehicle pulls up and out of the vehicle steps Harris Winchell. Detective Giblin asks him if he knows who drives the Volvo and he tells her that it's their family's housekeeper, Isla Abernathy. She then asks him if he knows where she is and he states that he just had gotten done with an emergency surgery at Ragmore Hospital and doesn't have any idea. It's at this point when he offers Detective Giblin the opportunity to go look around inside of the house. Unless they can't get in due to the gate. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So the abandoned Volvo is eventually towed for evidence purposes and is taken to the indoor Inverness Police impound lot. So after the vehicle is towed, Harris gets into his vehicle, drives up to the keypad, enters the six-digit code, and the gate opens. So Ava must have fixed it or something? It's possible. So Detective Giblin, Officer Dunsmore, and Harris Winchell then walk into the Winchell's family castle and begin a precursory search of the residence for Isla. During their walk through the home, they come across a sleeping Ava Winchell, Harris's wife. Harris at this point advises Detective Giblin that his wife has been feeling under the weather for a couple of days and Isla had been taking care of her while he was away at work. Detective Giblin then wakes Ava and begins asking her about Isla. Ava advises Detective Giblin that she had asked Isla to go to the store to retrieve some medicine items for her sickly symptoms. Detective Giblin then advises Ava that Isla is not in their home and her vehicle was located outside of their fence with the driver's side door open. In Detective Giblin's police report, it states that Ava had been contacted by the neighbor down the road who told Ava that Isla had come to their gate, stating that the Winchell's gate keypad wasn't allowing access 
to the Winchell property. The report goes on to state that Ava became visibly upset when she learned this from Detective Giblin, and she began crying hysterically. When asked what was wrong, the report states that Ava said she must have fallen asleep after the phone call because she never went down to the gate to assist Isla in getting inside. Oh, goodness. So how long was Isla sitting outside, do they know? Well, when Detective Sandy Giblin interviewed Thomas Greaves about what time Isla had rang his intercom, he stated that he remembered it being around 9.10 p.m. And when did the call come in from the passerby? 11.30 p.m. Oh, man, she froze. So it's at this point, Detective Giblin and Officer Dunsmore go back to their headquarters and Giblin issues an all-points bulletin, or an APB, and a missing persons announcement. Detective Giblin then goes to the impound garage where fingerprints are taken off of the outside door handle and sent to the crime laboratory in Edinburgh, Scotland to be ran through the criminal database. Later that day, according to Detective Giblin's police report, she went to Food Save just off of Culloden Road in Inverness. So she goes here after observing a receipt in one of the shopping bags that had been located inside of Isla's car at the scene. She speaks with the store manager, who's asked what employees were on the clock the night prior. Detective Giblin then speaks with both employees that were clocked in at the time that Isla would have been at the store the night before. Both employees are showed a picture of Isla, and both of them recognize Isla. When asked if anyone had been with her when they saw her, both of them stated she had been alone. Detective Giblin then asks both employees if Isla seemed nervous or scared during the time she was in their presence, and they both advised that she seemed fine. At approximately 1.36 p.m. on January 29, 1991, Inverness police are called to a report of a woman passed out in the grass by a tree in Walker Park, which runs alongside Kings Mills Road in central Inverness. Upon arrival, a woman in her late 30s is located. So we'll assume that's Isla? In a police report written by senior officer John Milford, it states that the woman's appearance was disheveled. She had twigs in her hair, grass and mud stains on her clothing, and appeared as though she'd been outside for a very long time due to her lips being a bluish-gray color and her skin appearing very pale. An ambulance was then called and the woman was transported to Rigmore Hospital for hypothermia and the police cleared the scene. After being unable to identify the woman, the hospital nursing staff called Inverness Police back and after two officers arrived, they called out Detective Giblin after they were able to identify the female as Isla Abernathy from the All Points Bulletin that Detective Giblin had issued the day prior. In Detective Giblin's police report, it states that she stood by Isla's bedside for approximately six hours until Isla awoke. In the police report, it states that Isla woke up very confused and had no clue why she was in the hospital. Detective Giblin explained to Isla that she had possibly been abducted. Detective Sandy Giblin then begins questioning Isla about the last things she remembered, but unfortunately, Isla advised Giblin that the last thing she remembers was being stuck outside the gate at the Winchell's when she saw a vehicle pull up behind her, and then she heard a man's voice and footsteps approaching her. When asked what the male said to Isla, Isla advised she couldn't remember. 
Did she see what kind of vehicle it was at all? Unfortunately, no. Okay, so then at this point, what can they even do? Like, if she doesn't remember anything, you know, what she saw, what she heard, what options do these police even have at this point? So that's a good question. So things like this are difficult because there really isn't a whole lot of options available in terms of finding a suspect. But what Detective Giblin does is sends Isla's clothes off to the crime laboratory in Edinburgh and asks them to assess the clothes for foreign fibers and also any human DNA. She also asks Isla if she'd be willing to allow the sane nurse to administer a sexual assault kit. Sane nurse? Sane nurse. As opposed to the insane nurse. <laughs> oh, wow, that's good. That's a good one. No, not quite. So a sane or S-A-N-E stands for Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. Gotcha, okay. At first, Isla is extremely hesitant about allowing this procedure because it is a very invasive procedure and takes almost an hour and sometimes even longer to complete. But after Detective Giblin explains to Isla that it may be their best shot at finding the person that did this to her, she agrees. The sane exam comes back positive about two hours later. Meaning what? Meaning that she was raped. Oh gosh, so now what? So now foreign DNA is collected from the pubic region of Isla's body. Foreign DNA is also vaginally swabbed. The evidence is then sent to the Edinburgh Crime Laboratory. Isla is then released from the hospital approximately two days later after being treated for hypothermia and she returns to the Winchell's residence. It's during this time when Detective Giblin begins a more in-depth investigation into the people that Isla resides with. She interviews Ava Winchell, who explains to Giblin that she had been home the entire night due to her flu-like symptoms. At this point, Detective Giblin removes Ava Winchell as a possible suspect. Oh, and sentence her to be self-quarantined for a possible COVID. You're on a roll tonight. Harris Winchell is then interviewed about his whereabouts that night, and he's able to provide documentation of his clocking in and clocking out for the emergency surgery of the victim in the vehicle accident that night. He explains to Detective Giblin that he keeps to himself when he is outside of work, and rarely does he participate in activities that don't involve his wife and son. Rick Stanfield, the Winchell's groundskeeper, is then interviewed, and in the police report, it states that throughout the entire interview, Stanfield appears to be very nervous. He was sweating through two layers of clothing and had to leave to use the restroom a couple times. At one point, Detective Giblin asks him, go ahead and read this. So what do you think about Isla? Do you ever talk to her? And Rick Stanfield then replies with, I like Isla. She's kind. A lot more kind than the Winchell's. I don't really do a whole lot. I just work the grounds, and when I'm not doing that, I usually just stay inside my house and watch television or read books. Lately, I just shovel the walks and lay down salt to melt down the ice so no one slips. At this point in the police report, it states that Detective Giblin asks Rick if he'd be willing to participate in a polygraph. Which is a lie detector, right? Right. So Rick nervously asks Giblin what exactly the polygraph will do, and she explains to him it's not admissible in court, it just allows her to get a better read on the statements that Rick is making. He then asks Giblin if this is something he has to do, and she tells him that it's not, 
but it would be in his best interest to partake in the test. He eventually agrees to it, and the test is scheduled for two weeks away. On February 10th, 1991, Detective Giblin asks Harris Winchell if he'd be willing to provide a blood sample. Harris refuses. When asked why he isn't willing to provide a blood sample, he then advises that he will no longer willingly speak with the police without the presence of an attorney. And this was Harris, the neurosurgeon, right? Correct. That's interesting. On February 11th, 1991, the next day police serve a search warrant on Harris Winchell for his blood. The police are then forced to strap Harris down on account of him fighting and resisting the needle the first time they had tried to draw his blood. The blood is eventually obtained from Harris, where it's then secured into an evidence box. On February 18th, the day of the scheduled polygraph exam for Rick Stanfield, he fails to show up. Police then go looking for him at his guest house, but find that most of his belongings within the house are gone. An all-points bulletin is then put out for Rick Stanfield. So Rick just up and left? It appears so. Wow. This is, this is getting stranger by the minute. It is. On March 3rd, the fingerprint analysis results from the driver's side door of Isla's car, as well as the DNA evidence from Isla's clothes, return from the laboratory in Edinburgh, and it details the presence of the following foreign substances on her clothing. Dirt, grass, salt, and cotton fibers not belonging to the vehicle that Isla was in. DNA from Harris, Ava, the three-year-old Jack, and Rick Stanfield were also located on her clothing. But Detective Giblin chalked this up to that being completely plausible on account of her living within the same quarters as all of those people. Right, that makes sense. The salt thingy kind of threw me for a loop. Interesting, huh? Okay, so what about the fingerprints? So on the fingerprint analysis on the Volvo that they'd found abandoned outside of the gate that night, they do not locate any fingerprints other than Isla's. There are some smudgings of fingerprints, but they're not able to determine exactly who they belong to or whether they also belong to Isla. It's at this point when Detective Giblin suggests that the abductor was likely wearing gloves on account of the cold weather. But she also considers the option of a possible premeditation angle for this crime, because if they wore gloves, they were doing it to conceal their fingerprints and their identity. On March 17, 1991, a request for emergency services is requested at the Winchell residence by Isla Abernathy, and she's complaining of severe pain in her abdomen area. After being admitted into the Rigmore Hospital, the medical professionals determine that she is, drumroll, constipated. Oh my god, how <laughs> lame, go on. They also advise Isla that this is likely just a side effect of the pregnancy. Well, there we go. Oh, God. Yep, so at this point, Isla gets extremely emotional after they tell her this, and they tell her she's about a month and a half along. She's then released from the hospital. So, some time passes. Isla is experiencing the beautiful wonders of first trimester pregnancy symptoms. Such beautiful wonders, you guys. Yeah. Harris is continuing his long work days at the hospital, and Ava and Jack are essentially just kind of hanging out in the Winchell Castle. 
So that groundskeeper, he's still missing at this point. Rick Stanfield? Yes. Yes, he's still missing. So no one's seen him, and there's been no hits on NCIC as to anyone else locating him within the entire world. On March 29th, 1991, a comparative DNA report is sent to Detective Giblin at the Inverness Police Department. The following day, after returning from days off, she opens up the report from the crime lab in Edinburgh and reads the following. Analysis date range, February 9th to March 24th, 1991. Item 1A, Sexual Assaults Kit DNA Swab. Item 2A, Vial of Blood Belonging to Harris Winchell. It then details the test results, and I want you to read these results. Test results, DNA profile positively matched between item 1A and item 2A. Accuracy of test, 99.97%. So what does that mean? Harris was the one who abducted and raped her? Certainly sounds like it. That doesn't make sense, because he was at the hospital and he even had his time cards, didn't he? Right, according to the time card that he showed to Detective Giblin, he was at the hospital. So then what the heck? So it's at this point when Detective Giblin secures an arrest warrant for Harris Winchell. Harris Winchell is arrested a couple hours later from his office at Regmore Hospital. During the interrogation of Harris, it states that at one point, Harris claims he'd been having an affair with Isla, and that's the reason for his semen matching with the DNA found within her. And he states that they had been engaged in sexual activities the night before she was abducted. So that's sort of the defense he's taking to this news he's learning. Gotcha. In an interview later conducted with Isla Abernathy, she claims none of that is true. She states that she's never slept with Harris and would never. The interrogation of Harris continues with Detective Giblin asking Harris how he forged his time cards from the hospital for that night. He then states that he did not forge his time cards. Detective Giblin then tells Harris that according to surgical records kept during the surgery of the patient from the accident that night, the surgery was reportedly completed at 10.10 p.m. She then asks Harris why he clocked out at 12.34 a.m. if the surgery had been completed nearly two hours prior to him clocking out. Harris then advises her that he was just mentally and physically exhausted after the surgery and he didn't feel confident in his ability to drive home due to the icy roads and for fear of nodding off while driving. So he stayed at the hospital and took a couple hours nap. All right. How far away is the Winchell House from the hospital again? Let's see here. So from Rigmore Hospital to the far end of Culloden Road where the Winchell Castle is, it's approximately a 10-minute drive without traffic. So he couldn't stay away for like 15, 20 minutes? Apparently not. At this point, Harris Winchell is arrested and booked into a jail in Inverness on charges of kidnapping, assault, and sexual assault. In the following months, more things are learned about Harris Winchell. Such as? Well, while attending David Geffen's School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles in 1974, according to records kept by the college, Harris was nearly removed from school after allegations against him were made by a freshman student. 
In these allegations reported to the campus, it states that the female, Ashley Mogden, 19 years old, claimed that her boyfriend's friend, Harris Winchell, climbed in through her ground level window shortly after a party had ended in her dorm room. It states that Harris attended the party and was extremely intoxicated and at one point even vomit all over the kitchen floor. It's at this point when Ashley Mogden's boyfriend takes Harris back to his dorm room and tells him to go to bed. The allegations continue with Ashley, stating that approximately three hours after she remembers her boyfriend taking Harris home, and about an hour after the dorm party ended, she heard what sounded like a bang come from her dorm window. At this point, she tries yelling to her doormate to wake her up, but realizes that her doormate is not there. She then realizes she's alone with this person who had just climbed into her dorm room window and is now inside her dorm. Ashley states that she climbed up off her bed, tried shoving past the person, but the intruder tackled her to the ground. It then states that Ashley Mogden hit the intruder across the head with a beer bottle laying on the ground next to her. She then ran for the exit. Campus police arrive shortly after and find a very intoxicated male walking away from her open dorm room. He was identified as Harris Winchell. When asked if she'd like to press charges against Harris, Ashley stated that she just wanted him gone. He was then escorted back to his dorm room. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that's not the only incident like it. There's more? Yes. In 1985, one of Harris Winchell's assistants made a report with the Human Resources Department at Rigmore Hospital, and she claimed that Harris had grabbed her inappropriately during a surgery in June. The medical assistant, whose name was not made available to me during my research, stated that Harris frequently made inappropriate comments throughout their time working together, but when he tried to grab her, she decided that she needed to make a report. She also requested that she never have to work with him ever again. Were the police called? No, so it's, it's actually kind of crazy. Apparently, the director of the hospital essentially threatened this female medical assistant by telling her that if she were to go to the police and report this, she would be terminated. How can they do that? Well, they can't. That's totally illegal. I don't think so. So why on earth would she not go to the police? Well, she was young, and I guess... They really put the fear of God into her because she was scared of losing her job. I, I have no idea. They did quit putting her on the same shift with Harris, so she never did have to work with him ever again. So she might have been okay after that. I'm just, I'm still confused. Why did the hospital director tell her that? Like, were they trying to protect him? So if you'll recall from the beginning, 1985 is actually the same year when that German medical research group named Harris Winchell the best neurosurgeon of the century. Oh, that's right. So based on my understanding of the situation, they knew that he was being looked at for this award, and they knew that if the news got out, he would no longer be considered for this award, so they buried the entire incident. But it's an award for Harris. Why does it matter to them? Because if people around the world read that this doctor, Harris Winchell, is being considered the greatest neurosurgeon in the entire world of the entire century... People who need those types of surgeries are going to flock from everywhere to come to this hospital, which will make Rigmore Hospital a ton of money. Right, right. Okay, yes, that makes sense. 
So Detective Giblin learns these things and takes them to the prosecuting attorney for the trial against Harris Winchell. By doing this, it's establishing a history of similar behavior exhibited in these crimes, and it shows that Harris has had a history of near possible sexual assaults against women. So the trial against Harris Winchell begins on September 3rd, 1991. The trial goes relatively quick and the jury finds him guilty of kidnapping with premeditation and sexual assault in the first degree. On September 26th, 1991, Isla Abernathy gives birth to a baby boy she names Brody Abernathy. On November 4th, 1991, Harris Winchell is sentenced to 35 years in prison at the HMP Inverness Prison in Inverness. What a crazy story. That's insane. Oh, you just wait. That is not the end. It's not? Oh, no. We we haven't even gotten to the best part. Oh, goody. So nearly two decades pass, and on July 28, 2014, a man is arrested in Sydney, Australia for a shoplifting at a gasoline station. The man is identified as missing person Rick Stanfield. The groundskeeper. The Winchell's groundskeeper. I forgot about him. So Stanfield is then booked into jail in Sydney on the shoplifting and the Inverness Police Department is contacted due to them being the original agency that put out the All Points Bulletin way back in 1991. So at this point, Detective Giblin is actually retired and unfortunately she's actually in a nursing home suffering from a strong case of Alzheimer's. Oh, well, that's sad. Yes, very. So the new lead detective for the Inverness Police Department is Detective Henry Davids. So he flies down to Sydney and begins interviewing this guy about that night way back in January of 1991. Why are they asking him if if they already sentenced Harris for these crimes? Well, you'll see. So at one point in the interview, Rick Stanfield says that he remembers Isla quite well. He called her very kind and extremely attractive. He goes on to state that he had nothing to do with what happened to her that night, though. It's at this point when Detective Henry David secures a search warrant to take Rick's blood after Rick refuses to willingly consent to the blood draw. The vials of blood are obtained and a detective with the Sydney, Australia, South Precinct takes it to their in-house laboratory technician who then puts a rush order on it. Approximately four days later, lab techs get a profile match from 23 different violent crimes and sexual assaults from Australia, Denmark, Ireland, and Scotland. Rick's blood profile matches 23 different crimes? Yes, 23 different violent crimes and sexual assaults across four different countries. Holy cow! That's insane. Yeah, and one of the profile matches is with a kidnapping slash sexual assault that occurred in Inverness, Scotland in January of 1991. Isla? Isla Abernathy. How is that even possible? It's possible because in the original comparative DNA testing done back in 1991, there were two different pages of comparative report summary sent back to Detective Giblin. The first page of that report, which we went over earlier, advised of the match between the DNA collected during the vaginal swab and the DNA in the blood profile belonging to Harris Winchell. So that part we already know. But apparently, there was a second page 
in this same comparative DNA summary report that had been mailed to Detective Giblin. And detailed on the second page of this report was a second match with an unknown person not in the criminal database system. This is also matched from the DNA collected during the vaginal swab of Isla. So Detective Giblin just didn't tell anyone about this second report? No, apparently not. It was found by Detective Davids with old case files in the filing room when he went back and looked through them after receiving the results that Rick Stanfield matched the profile from the crime. The report was filed in the box containing the case files and evidence from January 1991. But Detective Giblin never filed that second DNA comparative report with the prosecuting attorney's office or with any of her written reports. Why wouldn't she file that? I don't know. I have no idea. And we won't ever know. That's huge. Yeah. Some theories online suggest that Detective Giblin knew that she had the positive match with Harris. So that was all she needed. In a way, Harris was the scapegoat. That was what was for sure. With the second page, she probably realized, oh wow, this is no longer an open and shut case now with this new suspect that's unknown. I hate to say it, but she may have just been too lazy to do the extra work on finding this other guy. So it was Harris and some unknown guy who raped her that night? Well, no. On August 6th, 2014, in an interview conducted with Isla Abernathy by Detective Davids, he tells her, that there had been a second match from the crime lab after the DNA testing had been conducted back in 1991. Detective Davids goes on to explain to Isla that Detective Sandy Giblin had also received a second match with an unknown person from the DNA that had been collected. This unknown person at the time was not in the criminal database. At that time, the unknown DNA profile was saved and recorded into the database as unknown male 39847. Detective Davids then advised Isla that the Winchell's groundskeeper had been arrested in Sydney, Australia after going missing so long ago. He told Isla that his blood was drawn and eventually it matched to the DNA of unknown male 39847, which was put into the database in 1991. Because of this, it tied him to Isla's case from 1991. At this point, Detective Davids asks Isla if she had ever slept with Harris Winchell or Rick Stanfield during her time working for the Winchells. In the police report written by Detective Davids, it states that, at this point, after asking her that question, Isla put her head down and began softly crying. Eventually, she looked up at Davids and told him that she had fallen in love with Harris Winchell shortly after she was hired as the nanny in 1989. She stated that they began their love affair in 1990 one night after Harris came into her room shortly after she had lied down to rest. She goes on to explain that she had never slept with Rick Stanfield and that the two of them rarely even spoke to one another. When asked why she had lied to Detective Giblin when asked if she had ever slept with Harris back in 1991, Isla stated that Harris had told her about a week before her abduction that he no longer loved her and he needed to focus on his family. Isla stated that this made her extremely upset and she felt used. She stated that when Detective Giblin interviewed her, she saw it as the perfect opportunity 
to get back at Harris for breaking her heart. Nothing like sending an innocent man to prison for revenge. Yeah, no kidding. Goodness. So, is Harris released from prison now? No. Even though he's innocent? Harris Winchell was not released from prison for the crimes he was sentenced to prison for nearly 24 years prior because Harris Winchell died of natural causes at the age of 70 in 2012. Oh my gosh, this is this is all mind-blowing. Yeah, definitely one of the craziest ones we've done so far. I know. On August 16th, 2014, a paternity test is ordered by the prosecuting attorney's office for the case against Rick Stanfield from 1991. It's approximately eight days later when the results come back with a 97.85% positivity that Rick Stanfield is Brody Abernathy's father. Oh my gosh. I don't even have words anymore. Can you imagine how rough that would be for her? Like, you know, figuring like, oh, it's probably, this is the guy's who I was in love with. It's his baby this whole time, I thought. And then surprise, it's... Surprise, it's a guy I never even talked to hardly. Yeah. On January 14th, 2015, nearly 25 years after the abduction of Isla Abernathy outside of the gate to the Winchell's home, the trial against Rick Stanfield begins. During the trial, some of the original evidence from the trial against Harris Winchell is showed to the jury, as well as some of the newer DNA evidence, including the paternity test conducted on Brody Abernathy. The prosecuting attorney's office also shows the jury the 99.87% positive DNA profile match between Rick Stanfield's DNA and the DNA collected from Isla Abernathy's person in 1991. During Rick Stanfield's testimony, he details his attraction toward Isla Abernathy. At one point, he advised that he had been planning to ask her out for months leading up to the abduction, but one night decided on a better plan. For fear of rejection, Stanfield states that on the night of January 9th, 1991, he left the Winchell property and went and sat down the road to the west on Culloden Road in between the Greaves residence and the Winchell residence in his car. Stanfield states that while in the Winchell's house earlier on in the day, he located Ava Winchell's medicine and took it to his house and burned it. He knew that eventually... Someone would have to leave the house to get her more medicine, and he knew that person likely would be Isla. After observing Isla leave in her dark blue Volvo, Rick Stanfield drove up to the keypad outside of the gate and changed the six-digit PIN number to 000000. He then went back to his car and waited for Isla to return after driving back down the road. Rick Stanfield told the jury that he started walking up to Isla's car almost right after she got there, but when he saw the reverse lights on the vehicle light up, he stated he had to hide along the shoulder of the road in the mud. A short time later, Isla's Volvo returned to the keypad, and this is when Rick drove his vehicle and parked it in the middle of the road behind Isla's Volvo in case she wanted to leave. He then got out of his vehicle opened the passenger door, and placed a chloroform rag over her face until he felt her body go limp. He then dragged her body to the open passenger door on his vehicle and placed her inside. Rick then states that he got out of his vehicle, opened up the gate, and then before driving to his house, he changed the six-digit pin on the gate keypad to the original six-digit code before he had changed it. 
Rick stated that he did everything he had ever dreamed of doing to Isla since the moment he saw her. And he stated that a couple hours later, he took her to Walker Park and laid her body next to a tree. He stated that at first, he was very nervous that he was going to be caught and considered murdering Isla. He considered this after seeing the police arrive outside the gate around 2 a.m. He stated that he was holding a gun to Isla's head when he saw the police drive through the open gate and onto the Winchell's property. At first, he thought they were coming to get him. But once they continued onward to the Winchell's castle, he stated that he waited until they were inside, loaded Isla's body into his car, and went to Walker Park. Rick stated that when the detective came to his house and asked him to do a lie detector, he figured he'd been made and decided he needed to leave the area immediately. That's exactly what he did, and he continued moving on for the next two decades. The jury eventually found Rick Stanfield guilty of kidnapping with premeditation and sexual assault in the first degree. He was later sentenced to 45 years in prison. Over the course of the next five years, Rick Stanfield was in and out of court for the various cases brought against him after his DNA profile matched with the 22 other violent crimes and sexual assaults. At the time of his death, on October 3rd, 2019, Rick Stanfield had been found guilty of 13 counts of sexual assault, 4 counts of kidnapping, and 6 counts of murder. He still had 14 trials pending against him. His prison sentence at the time of his death was 3,235 years. This is still the longest prison sentence of any inmate, dead or alive, in the entire United Kingdom. In June of 2018, Detective Sandy Giblin passed away at the age of 89 in her nursing home bedroom. Ava Winchell still resides within the Winchell's Castle in Inverness. She is presently 64 years old. Jack Winchell, the son of Ava and Harris Winchell, is a psychotherapist at a small clinic in London, England. He is 32 years old. Isla Abernathy is presently living somewhere in Northern Ireland. She is 71 years old. Brody Abernathy, the son of Isla Abernathy and Rick Stanfield, is a college professor at the University of Miami in Florida. He is almost 30 years old. Wow. <laughs> I really liked that one. That's a good one. Lots of twisties and turnies. Oh my gosh, I know. All over the place. Yeah, it's a crazy one, for sure. What was your favorite part? Or what part had you just losing your mind? Oh, what I can't believe nobody acknowledged that the wife had COVID. <laughs> You're just still on that joke. That's a good one. You think I'm hilarious. Yeah, I do. Um, there was a, let me think, what was I going to do? I, I preferred your insane to sane nurse. Oh, thank you. That was a good joke. Oh, the, the second report page that never got reported in or turned in. Right, yeah, the the one that she never filed. Yeah, that was insane. For a while, I thought you were going to, the story was going to turn and say that Rick somehow like knew her. Like, she, Oh, you're thinking that she had something to do with Rick. Yeah. Like she was covering something. Exactly. And that's entirely possible. Like, we will never know. Like, I mean, now she's dead. Even back then, she was suffering from a strong case of Alzheimer's. So, yeah, we'll never know. And that's entirely possible. And that's, I never, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, that's, 
Yeah, it's crazy. It is. All, all of it was insane. Well, it's stretched out for 25 years is another crazy part. Because it started in... 1991 right? and went on to... I mean, Rick Stanfield was arrested for, of all things, shoplifting all, from a gas station. Just the biggest psychopath living with them. Yeah. And that was in 2014 when he was arrested for the shoplifting. So began in 1991 when the abduction took place and... I mean, things started folding up in 2014. Wow. Quite the prison sentence, huh? I know. And Harris, he died in prison, an innocent man. Yeah. He spent a long time in there, too. Died at 70 years old, an innocent man. All because Isla didn't want to tell the truth. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, I really enjoyed this story. You did very good. It was a lot of research. <laughs> so any guesses on whether it's true or false? Well, this story had me captivated the whole time. I mean, I'm, I can't wait to be wrong again, but I'm going with true. True? I liked this story. Yeah, I'm going to go with true. Let's find out. It is unbelievable. No. I made it up. Oh, good Lord. Completely made up. You know how long that one took? How long? Close to 14 hours total. Wow. Yep. Took a long time to write that one. Oh, God, I'm so bad at this, but that was really good. You did a really good job writing that. I was so into it. <laughs> good job, Ty. You got me. Hopefully, I, any future ones that follow, hopefully they'll be as good as this one because I did enjoy writing this one. That was good. This, was, this is our HBO one right there. Yeah. <laughs> any uh, questions I can answer? Okay. Yeah. One question. Going back... You said they found salt on her at one point. That was one of the things. Right. What so if you'll recall in the interview with Detective Giblin and Rick Stanfield, he talked about how he didn't do a whole lot and he just kind of kept to himself and read books and watched television. But because it was winter, he had been lying salt down oh, on the sidewalk to prevent people from slipping on the ice. Right. Okay. So if she was with him in his guest house, I mean, there might have been salt lying on the ground. Yes. And even if she was being dragged around. So that was my mindset when I wrote that. That makes sense. All right. So that's going to do it for episode five of Unbelievably True Crimes. We appreciate your support and listenership. We hope we continue in our ability to produce these episodes for you. We hope that they get better and better with every time. Please review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's extremely helpful and appreciated as it drives us up the iTunes charts, gets our show out to more people. It takes a significant amount of time to research these and, and to make them up. On average, I, I always spend over 10 hours total working on these. So, I mean, some take longer than others. When I make them up, you know, this one took close to 14 hours. It may have even taken more. I have no idea because I come back to it the next day and look for inconsistencies and errors and things like that. So if you could just take three minutes out of your time to give us five stars, you don't have to write anything. If you don't want, just click five stars, click submit. Or if you're feeling extra generous, write a review and give us five stars and click submit. Extremely beneficial and it means a lot to us. Again, Apple Podcasts on your iPhone or on your iTunes desktop app. Just search Unbelievably True Crimes, click the five stars, and submit. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes to receive regular updates. If you've got any suggestions or feedback, send us an Instagram message or email into unbelievably true crimes at gmail.com. Also, if you have any ideas for 
future made up crimes, or if you want to make up a crime and email it to me and I read it and I love it, I will do that for one of the episodes and I will credit you at the end. Anything that can, if, if I can have a week off of writing, that would be awesome. So anyone who loves the show, if you're a good writer, make a crime up or give me an idea, shoot me an article, give me a true crime. I don't care. I would love that. Unbelievably true crimes, gmail.com. Tune in for episode six, which will be next Monday, and tune in every Monday for more incredible case studies with us. This has been Unbelievably True Crimes, episode five. I'm Ty. I'm Adri. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. And in the meantime, trust Trust nobody. nobody. Thank you for listening to another case of Unbelievably True Crimes with Ty and Adri. We appreciate your attentiveness and good judgment throughout the hearing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Also, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes. Until next time, court is adjourned. Thank you and good night. Let's cut through the crap, shall we? I've got your statement. And I think it's safe to say that you and me both know that this is a load of pish. It's garbage. So, why don't you do us both a favour and tell me what really happened?